Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Motorama. Ten-year-old Gus, played by Jordan Christopher Michael, runs away from home in a red Mustang. His goal is to start a new life by taking what little money he has and hop from gas station to gas station to play their Motorama card game and win $500 million. Screenplay by Joseph Minion, directed by Barry Shills, and premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 10th, 1991. Have you seen this movie before? No. Had you heard of this movie? No. I, I didn't know about this movie until we were looking up movies for this month of fantasy month. Yeah. Which, I, yeah, it's... I guess it fits. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be a little more family-friendly than it was. It's not incredibly unfamily friendly i mean the kid is swearing yeah there's like one little scene of nudity in there too but yeah and this is rated r it's rated r probably because of the nudity uh and maybe there's more than one f-bomb i don't remember anymore i mean he swears a lot does he yeah i don't know if he says more than one f-bomb but he's saying yeah like shit and I don't know, son of a bitch or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. He he's uh he comes off as an adult a lot of the times and yeah. all of the adults who interact with him also basically treat him like an adult, which is interesting dynamic that they chose to do for this. Yeah. You know, it's it's a little kid who is driving a car and is clearly fully alone and yet that's never the first question out of anyone's mouth, I don't think, other than the, the policeman. Yeah. Uh, but everyone else is just like, hey, how's it going? Or, you know, where'd you get the money for that car? Or, you know, um, do you want a room for the night? You know, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, no one, everyone... No one he, questions it at all, that he's alone and this little kid. Yeah, right? they're not like, oh, where are you? Except the only people that think he's a kid is the cop and then those two people that kidnapped him yeah and i think the cop only really mentions it because he's asking about who owns the car in general oh and, and since he, he just stole says my dad it, yeah since he stole it he had to say his dad to kind of like cover for his own yeah. crime and then oh well where's your dad he's like oh he's in the bathroom mm-hmm. um yeah and then the kidnapping couple which was I mean, a weird... I mean, th- this whole movie is full of weird scenes. Yeah. <laughs> but when when those... When that couple came into the diner, he acted as if he knew who they were. Like, he, he had a reaction to them. Like, oh, I gotta escape from these people. And I thought it was his parents. Yeah, but, I mean, they obviously don't know who the kid is. Yeah. It was, it was a weird reaction. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he knew that they were trouble, and rightfully so. I mean, maybe... Well, I don't know. Cause I was thinking, well, maybe he was just... Staying away from all adults, but not really. That's... That can't no. be it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really tough to say. Yeah, uh, to sort of go back to the original question, my experience I, I've seen this box a lot working at the video store and I don't think anything in this in the box art or anything really prepares you for what this movie is trying to be 
Yeah, because you have Drew Barrymore on it. And she's only just kind of like a vision of this kid's dreams. She's in, yeah. For like two scenes. If that. If if that, I don't know, like a couple of times. Yeah, like a minute of screen time total. And yet here she is with her. With her face. I mean, they probably, I mean, people know who Drew Barrymore is. So they're probably like, oh, Drew Barrymore's in it. Let's watch this movie. I think that was the intention, but yeah, even the tagline, some of them are misleading. So you have a couple. One is the ultimate road odyssey from the writer of After Hours. Um, yeah, I think that would get people's attention. Uh, most kids can't wait to get their driver's license. Ten-year-old Gus didn't. Yeah. Okay, sure. And then there's only one way to win the girl of your dreams, floor it. And, you know, with the box art, it's indicating that Drew Barrymore is the girl of his dreams, which... I mean, but he's not never really see going real life. for a girl of his dreams. It's never stated to be the goal. Yeah. No. It's, the goal it's is to get... get the money. The money, yeah. To win this... This fake contest. Yeah, this... Kind of like, um... Now with the McDonald's pieces. Mm-hmm. With the Monopoly pieces type of thing. Like, you can win millions of dollars. And it this is the same situation and then you get you have to spell out the word motorama and obviously you get like 1000 m's yeah and and then i mean near the end of the movie he gets all of them but he spends a lot of time looking for the r like the r is the rare one yeah it's, it's, um, you kind of understand where that storyline is going, right? Where he's going to have some letters that he picks up along the way, and it's just kind of a way to show progression when the movie doesn't give you any naturally. Because mm-hmm. he's really just bouncing from location to location and having these quirky interactions with random cameos. Yeah. And then he moves on to the next one and talks to some other people that, you know, if if it was me and my parents watching this back in 1991, they would have recognized and I would not have. You know, a lot of people um, who are in movies from like the 70s and 80s and, and things like that make guest appearances, but really... The only way to really know that there's anything progressing is you have a bunch of shots of the dashboard where he keeps all the letters, which is a really nice touch. Mm-hmm. So you can see, okay, well, he has the two M's, and now he has the the A's, and now he has the O, and, and whatnot. And that's the way to tell how far along in the movie you are to a degree, even though I think in one scene he gets three letters at a time, so it kind of takes that away, too. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning he gets... Um, so it's... The he's going on a road trip to these gas stations that are participants of this contest, the Chimera. Yeah, it's all it's all fake. So yeah, yeah. Chimera gas stations um, are running this contest, Motorama, in this. I don't know. Like the whole world is kind of apocalyptic. It seems that, I mean, but it's just like in the desert. It's like in... Very run-down desert locations. Yeah, you're you're like in the um, eastern side of California into Arizona up to like Salt Lake. So he's going through all those, you know, dry states like Nevada. Yeah, but with town names that are not familiar to me at all. I thought he went to Salt Lake. Did that was the only town. Like, the The one I remember them specifically mentioning was, I think it was Essex. I mean, it could have and been. And I didn't know, like, what, you know, was there actual significance in this? I thought it was maybe a Canadian production or something, because the money that they use is not American dollars. Uh, it was shot in America, as far as I can tell. Yeah. But it... they used... Um, what was it? The, what was the currency they used? Danish. They, they they did use some sort of European currency in this to kind of give it more of like a, a I more thought, off-putting vibe. Oh, I I all I know is that you had to make a five dollar purchase 
to yeah. get these cards. But so. all of his money was colored. Yeah, it looked like Monopoly money to right. me. But I didn't know it European was European uh... in some way. Oh, okay. It was like old Danish money or. or I just thought like this is like some made up world. I mean, this entire world. Yeah. <laughs> is like a made up world, and I just thought you know oh they use like Monopoly money or. Whatever. Yeah, it led to the fantasy of it, or <clears throat> to the fact that this could be in in the future, and we just don't know. I yeah. Don't know. Um, or just an alternate reality. Yeah, it doesn't say what year it is, so we don't know. What we can say is that it very much looks like a 90s movie in the way that it's shot. Oh, yeah. Um, I got very strong Pete and Pete vibes from this. Oh, this was... I was also thinking, is this a USA Up All Night movie too? I don't know. I didn't check. Oh, because this is something I would have watched if I knew about it. If it was on USA All Night, I would have liked it when I was younger. I would have liked it when I was... I, okay, I liked it now. I mean, I like it, but I probably would have been, like, really, like... You know, this gave yeah. me, like, John Waters, like, even David Lynch. Mm-hmm. And do you know who Greg Araki is? I Yeah, I know the name. Yep. Like, those types of, like, weird, quirky vibes. And then... Like, those types of movies I was, like, so drawn to when I was, like, in my teens. Like, Crybaby, you know, I was, like, obsessed with. And then, like, if I... And then there was someone in Crybaby that was in this movie. The Yeah, Susan Tyrell. Yeah, she... So I was, like... the bartender in one of the first scenes. And, um, yeah, so, like, if I knew about this movie in the mid-90s, I would have been, like, so obsessed with it. I agree. I, I think this is would have been one of those things where... It's like, it was that secret movie that I found for myself. Yeah. yeah. And no one knows about it. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is my little... That's why I figured this should be a USA Up All Night movie, but it probably wasn't. Because, I, mean, I, I mean, I didn't watch every single movie, but... It, it might have USA been. Up All Night. There, there is so much cult and camp in this that yeah. it would fit right in. Um, so yeah, like you got Susan Tyrell in there who is not only in Cry Baby, but also like Forbidden Zone and Flesh and Blood and Tape Heads and Big Top Peewee, but she's also an Oscar nominee for Fat City and she's been in Andy Warhol's Bad. And then you have a bunch of other similar people like the kidnapping couple that we talked about. We got Maria Warrenov coming back. You know, we saw her before in Rock and Roll High School Forever mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, I forget her character's name already. <laughs> I want to say Dr. Claw, that's Inspector she's Gadget. She's just like the principal. Yeah, she was the, you know, the... I don't know her name in that. I just know yeah. her as the... I forgot her name in that. So, I mean, that's the type of quality of person that you have in this. Uh, and Sandy Barron plays the husband, who's like a stand-up comedian from the 60s and 70s. And there's a, several comedians from the 60s and 70s that are in this movie as well. So it, it's a very interesting cast, but shot, yeah, like a modern day, well, at the time, modern day kids TV show. Just yeah. with some adult themes. Yeah, I mean, I get the Pete and Pete, you know, like with the younger Pete with the tattoos. Yeah, this is like younger Pete is allowed to use saltier language and he's on a solo adventure. Mm-hmm. And he's going through. And even the first person you come across really, not the first person, but the first major character you come across, Phil, at the gas station... He's he like kind of looks like Artie. And bus driver Stu, like a combo of those two types of things. I don't know. Like That's... He's more innocent like a bus driver Stu. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But um, it's not But it's not. Him. No, no, no it, it's not the same person. Phil is played by John Deal, who we've seen in Kickboxer 2. He was Jack, the business manager. Which, that's like a, he was like a dickhead in that. No, he's just, you know, he was a very straightforward... He was just kind of allowing shit to happen <laughs> and not, like, but completing Completely different character type, also. Yeah, yes. That's what I'm saying. Like, this is totally different yeah. role. So, yeah, here he's much more... I don't know. He, he's more childlike than Gus is. Yeah. In, in this whole scenario. It's such it's such a weird movie. I don't know. We could go through like scene by scene by scene, but it's 
it's really something that I think is probably best for people to explore a lot on their own. Um, but it, it, I don't know. It's just fascinating to see where the movie was going to go next. I mean, and, yeah, and you're how it was going to pay off if it was. Going to you're pay like off. rooting for him to get to win this contest. Yeah, but I also at the same time didn't care if he ever got anywhere with the contest because I was just kind of like, okay, well now what? What is the movie going to throw at me next? Well, you know, like I, I was more interested in that. You know, we go from Phil to the motel clerk played by Jack Nance from Twin Peaks and basically every David Lynch movie ever. Mm-hmm. You know, he is the lead character in Eraserhead, right? Uh, and and then you have you know the scene with Meatloaf doing the arm wrestling. and you know Sandy Barron and Mary Warrenov is the kidnapping people and and things just continue to escalate and escalate and escalate and like the kid is like getting beat up and like mutilated yeah to the point where like when he with the meatloaf scene you can say that you know he well cause he's he's he he only has what like thirty dollars to his name or something something so he's going up to people and he's kind of like challenging or betting with them like like the one guy with his family throwing horseshoes he's like mm-hmm. I'll bet you a hundred dollars I'll get all of them the horseshoes on the whatever spike thing and then you owe me a hundred dollars and he gets it yeah and then that so he's like winning turn too yeah <laughs> Dick but, Miller plays so, the horseshoe player there um, best known to me is from Gremlins too, but obviously from yeah. other stuff too but but he's winning, but then the people that he wins against, they're butthurt about it, and then he gets... I mean, the first thing after the arm wrestling is he gets his entire arm, like, he gets a full sleeve of tattoos. Yeah, because and he, he can't just pay pa- up. Yeah, he can't pay up, but then... um, They just leave him there, and he kind of... He's, like, passed out from, like, all the tattoos on... And then they rip off his sleeve, so he's walking around with, like, one sleeve to show all the tattoos on his arm. And before that, he had lost his eye, basically, because... Oh, after that, he got his eye... No, it was before that, yeah, the kidnapping couple came through and um, hit him, punched him in the eye... And it got infected or whatever, and they brought like a doctor to this hotel room. Said, <laughs> that whole scene oh, was yeah, like Oh yeah, we're insane. not gonna fix it. It's not worth the money. Yeah, like the whole scene <laughs> so was just like over the, the top, but it was making me laugh. It's just yeah, the kidnapper. I don't know why did they kidnap him because he was just a kid. I don't know if they fully or said they wanted money, but I or mean if he doesn't gonna have do a something lot. Salacious or whatever. Yeah, they don't. But yeah, they they knock him out and they bring him to some hotel room and that's when, like, he wakes up and he's wow, my eye really hurts. Like, what? Uh, like, can you call a doctor? And they're like, okay, it's just like (laughs) some super bloody. And the doctor comes and like, well, he needs surgery. Yeah, he'll (laughs) lose his sight. And or the, he's gonna lose his sight, and, and the then, kidnapping couple is like, "Okay, that's cool. They're gonna lo- he's gonna lose his sight, so he can't identify us anymore." Basically, yeah. So like, oh well, it's our decision since he's our son. So yeah, they're posing nope, as we're not gonna his do parents, it. and then the doctor's like, "Okay," and then leaves. Yeah. But it's like, what if he did do the surgery? Like, you can't do it right then and there. Yeah. Maybe, maybe thought, they would have if in this movie. You never know. Yeah, I just, I just thought that was funny. So yeah, and there's a lot of weird scenarios, and yeah, he's driving from different towns, and so each each gas station attendant has its own quirky personality there as well. And then you have like this long scene with Flea, who plays the bus boy in the restaurant with the kidnapping couple. Yeah, and he poses as, like, an ex- an inspector. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so the little kid, Gus, poses as an ex- as in an a, inspector in order in to... a diner. Uh, ...elude the captors before they become the captors. Right. And his ultimate goal is to steal their gas from the couple so he can continue on his way. Um, because he's trying to steal the gas, and that's when he gets, like, punched. They catch him, 
get, but yeah, mm-hmm. before that he goes in and meets up with the cook, played by Paul Wilson, again, a notable comedian of the time, and we'll see him again in 90, 1991's Problem Child 2. Probably best known as from Office Space as one of the bobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the Gus is over here saying, oh, this is a unclean kitchen, you know, that's a fine of like $10 or $100. It's or like you like made navy bean soup. That's $20. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like He's just making up his things. own penalties and the yeah. cook is going along with it, even though this is clearly a 10-year-old kid. Yeah, I mean, it's just really silly. But it's like the right kind of silly. Yeah. It's, and everyone thinks that he's an adult, but then all he he put on is, you know, those, like, glasses with the big nose and the mustache Mm -hmm. and, like, a white coat on, and everyone's afraid of him. Yeah. (laughs) It's just such a... it, It goes weird places. So, yeah, he's driving from town to town, and like I said, there's this one little part where they specifically mention that he's going into Essex, and I don't know where Essex is supposed to be, I know it as a town in the United Kingdom, but I don't know if it is one in the, US. the Western United I mean, States. Yeah, in I mean, there's probably an Essex in every state, probably. But they, they make know. specific mention of it being Essex, which is weird. And then they show how lawless of a land it is, and you have like just people running around with drugs and you know crime happening on every little turn and there's like this guy there's this guy dressed up like a pope in a chair and he's getting shot and then you have like Ku Klux Klan members and stuff like that it's just like this complete lawlessness and it's just such a weird weird out there scene and I didn't know if like maybe Essex was like you know some sort of like a joke from the time or something I don't know but it goes in weird places you know you have the scene where he crashes the car and then he sees the dying man who's in the exact same clothes as him in the exact same car as him it's like him from the future still looking for that letter r yeah all he needs and that's when i was thinking oh so he's just never gonna find it and he's just gonna spend his whole life looking for the r right but he does find it. He does, yeah. The guy's like, don't give your kids names with the start with R because <laughs> it's going to ruin your luck. Because Okay, here's the thing with the contest. We don't know how long it's been going on, but they make specific note to say it never expires. Spelling out Motorama makes you eligible for $500 million. All ages are eligible, and it never expires. So it's been going on for so long that a lot of the, the stations that they come across are people... Make fun of him for paying, playing the Motorama games. Like, oh, nobody plays that anymore. Yeah. Nobody, like, this is this is stupid. Why are you playing this? No one plays Motorama. And so they can't even find the cards or whatever. Things like that happen, too. But he goes to, yeah, he goes to a different gas station. And um, it's this... It's this uh, hunchbacked type of uh, guy. I don't know. Um, yeah. He can't talk. Mm-hmm. And he gives him the... The, the R. <laughs> the, the one card that he has available. Yeah. For And I think it's like the last $5 that Gus has, probably. And uh, ends up being the R that he needs. And, I mean, so, like, as... It's making you think as if he's a man. Because when he goes to that family there's like it's like this family on a picnic and that's you know the guy's playing horseshoes with his daughter and then the the wife and the son are just sitting at a picnic table and that's when the son is like oh that man over there only has one eye he's weird looking Mm -hmm. but this is the funny thing this makes me think of john waters where she's kind of like don't she's like you know don't say that or yeah but then he says it again, and she, she's like... Yeah, because Cus is like, oh, no, it's okay. I, I understand. Yeah. And then, and then the mom eggs him on. Yeah, say it again, then. So it's like that type of humor. But as he's progressing along, like, his hair all of a sudden becomes white and gray, even though he's still, like, a 10-year-old kid. Well, I think part of it is because when he crashes his car, like, a lot of the dust and stuff from the environment gets into his hair... 
but yeah, it, it makes it look, obvious that it, he's got like white hair. Now, yeah, it makes but. him it makes him look older because he has the eye patch, he has the tattoos, and now he has the white hair. And then I think he has like some stubble that had kind of formed on his chin. In the yeah, same type of so way. they think he's like this weird looking old man, even though he's just like a ten year old boy. I don't know yeah. with a wig on. <laughs> but yeah, he he goes through a journey in multiple ways in this thing. Yeah, so he finds he finally gets the letter R. And that's when he goes to the company headquarters Mm -hmm. and he goes to the lobby and calls. He's like, I want to talk to whoever is in charge of Motorama. And then whoever he's on the phone with is like, okay, yeah, that's me. (laughs) And he's like, okay, well, I got all the letters and I spelled out Motorama. So give me the money. I'm the winner. And that's when they just, you know, say turn the card over and read the rules again. It just says you're eligible to win, not you won. Right, and and that will let you know. Yeah, we'll let you know if you are the winner. Right. But then, you know, he gets pissed off. And that's when he just kind of... So, since he's like a 10-year-old kid, he's trying to find out... Because I forgot the woman's name. She's like, this is... Miss um, Lawton. Miss Lawton. So, he's looking on, you know, back in the... Like, back in the day when... I don't know if lobbies still do this anymore in major offices. But they used to. I, I mean, I don't know. You know, when he was on... Like, if you go in the lobby, you just look by last name and then it's the floor they're on. So, he's looking for L... Mm-hmm. But he can't reach high up, so he's jumping up and down trying to find L. Yeah, and you get like a POV shot of the blurry stuff and trying to <clears throat> trying to read it with him. And he finds her office number and goes up the elevator to find her. And, and there's a couple more cameos there. You got Alice Beasley, who's the receptionist in that little area. She's known for moonlighting. Um, where she has two Emmy nominations and a Golden mm-hmm. Globe for that. And then Robin Duke is Miss Lawton, who was Emmy nominated for SNL for writing back in, you know, the the Dead Zone days. Um, she was, I think that was like 86 or so when she got her Emmy nomination, but she was a cast member on SNL and then also, also SCTV cast member for a little bit there as well. So a couple more cameos in there from comedians. And basically, yeah, they <laughs> then they they basically say, yeah, no. They try to get information, and say like, what which station gave you the R? Because basically, no way it was ever supposed to. Yeah, win no this one's. Contest. Yeah, this is like the it's McDonald's just a thing, thing to do. And he wouldn't yeah. be able. He didn't give the information, and they throw him out the window, right <laughs> into the water. And evidently, there's water down below outside the, right. the office because he's thrown out like a multi-story building. Mm, yeah, and I was like, "Oh my god, he's dead!" But no, he. So this water like washes him. He all of a sudden his eye is healed and his arm, like all the tattoos are gone, and he's just back to being this ten-year-old kid again. And his car, like, his car is good as new, because his car kind of, like, broke down or whatever. When he crashed he his car, it. he, I, I'm pretty sure he stole the car from the dying guy. Because his car was, like, in, in a ditch, basically. And he got out, and that's when he started talking to the dying guy, oh. who was dressed like him. And then that guy died, and then I think he just took dying guy's car. Which oh, was the same okay, as okay. Because he kept, you know, all the, they both basically had all the letters except for the R. Mm. And so he just took the car and continued on the way. So I think that's why it looked okay is because it wasn't the one that crashed. But I thought it was something where it was kind of flashing back before everything happened to him. Yeah, but But it's just like, but he's not even mad about it. He's just like, okay, I'm going to move on with my life. Yeah. And that's when and he then goes he starts back. hitchhiking because he doesn't. He yeah. abandons the car altogether and hitchhikes. It, but he makes his way back to the first gas station where Phil is. But we didn't even. So Phil is like this religious guy. Like he was something with the kite. Like the he has he a was kite. He's using the kite to show his dead, 
either his dead dad or Jesus. I don't remember which one. Probably Jesus. This picture that the newspaper was trying to take of him. He's like, the only person who needs to see this is the man upstairs, basically. Mm -hmm. And so he attached it to a kite and tried to get it as high up as possible. Right. But the kite went loose, and that's when... Because Gus let it loose so he could escape. Yeah, because Phil was... Yeah, at that point, that's when the cop came by and was asking all these questions. So that's when Phil was lying and saying, oh, my dad's here. Yeah, or, or Phil did Gus not want to lie to the cop. Yeah, basically, Phil, he's like, "Well, I know Gus that you're a liar like and whatever, and so I can't do that because I'm a, a religious man and I need to tell." The yeah, truth. and Phil got mad at him and chased him around this tiny little gas station. But Phil is chasing after this kite, and he gets hit by a semi, and we all assume that he gets killed. Right. But when Gus returns to him. He is, I don't know, he's got, he's just... He, he's just in a full body cast. Now. Yeah, I guess so. Like, <laughs> and, you know, like he's I'm trying, trying to do his think. job like and he's his, having a really hard time, but he yeah, has the name tag on top of the body Yeah, cast. he has the name tag on top, so his entire, yeah, his entire body is cat. I'm trying to think, like, even his head? Yeah, his entire uh, no, body is just in a cast. Yeah, I think his head is fine. Except, yeah, except for his head. Because I thought his head was bandaged. Like, he was mummy-like, but I guess not. But that's, yeah, that, that's the, the real clue to say that this stuff happened. Because when he's hitchhiking, Gus gets picked up by the cop. But he's not in his cop's uniform and not in a cop car. And doesn't give any indication that they've seen each other before. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, this is just like a Wizard of Oz thing. And now he's seeing people. Yeah, for But then you get to Phil, and he's in the full body cast. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. And they just work at the gas station together because, you know, Gus just helps Phil out because Phil can't really do it by himself. Yeah, it's a callback to another conversation as well to kind of yeah. largely end things. But, um... Yeah, it's another kind of, I don't know if it was like a foreshadowing thing. Like in the beginning where Phil was just explaining about working at a gas station. He's like, maybe you'll work here one day, or work as a gas station attendant one day. Not, yeah. Not exactly there. Yeah, I think the cop even points to the signs, like, yeah, this would be a good place to work. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's some customer there who had just won a million dollars, and I guess is sort of like rubbing it in Gus's face in a sense karma wise like oh hey look things don't always come to good people or whatever you want to say from it um but then, then that guy drives off and drives gets hit off. by a truck too yeah <laughs> so but There's... then he gus does well this is like at the end of the movie gus just remains at the gas station with phil mm-hmm just staring off into the distance like do they go and get the million dollars well it makes you think like are they gonna go get this money or not yeah maybe yeah because i think the credits roll like right after the accident possibly yeah and you just see gus and phil staring out down the road yeah it's another cameo there the million dollar driver with shelly berman another comedian from the late 50s and early 60s he has a grammy win for best comedy album in 1959 also Emmy nominated for a guest spot on Curb Your Enthusiasm and was part of the Compass Players with Mike Nichols. So, um, like I said, a lot of a lot of names in this. Some that we haven't even talked about, like Garrett Morris makes another appearance and things like that too. So, very very interesting movie. I think the one thing that kind of hurts it is just that it is an independent movie, and so the audio lacks a lot of polish. Uh, it is slow moving at times i don't know like don't expect high production values yeah but if you can kind of you know accept the indie feel the you know 16 millimeter crunchiness and and you know audio pops and stuff like that then you're gonna have an interesting time okay let's talk a little bit about the last of the cast and crew that we haven't talked about already we got barry shills the director he has not done a whole lot. This is really his only fiction film that he did. He did a documentary called Wigstock the Movie, which is about a, a giant uh, drag event that happened in New York City. I think that was directed in 1995. 
I, like RuPaul and I've all those people are in that, there. Yeah. So he did that one. He's also a producer who's done things for Real Sex on um, HBO and also produced Vampire's Kiss, which was written by this movie's writer, Joseph Minion. So Joseph Minion did After Hours and Vampire's Kiss. Those are the most notable ones that he's done. Jordan Christopher Michael, who played Gus, didn't do a whole lot of notable acting. Around this time, he was on one episode of Say by the Bell, which I've seen many, many times, because I've seen a lot of those episodes many times as a kid, and also had a several-episode run on Full House. Um, again, a couple other people that we haven't mentioned. Martha Quinn has a cameo in here, MTV VJ. Um, Richard Picardo is the policeman. He has a more notable role than we kind of talked about. Just like Dick Miller, he is in Gremlins 2, and he also has a Saturn nomination for his role in Gremlins 2, which is really weird. Because I was trying to think of, like, what what did he really do? But he got seduced by the female gremlin. Hmm. And evidently that earned okay. him a Saturn nomination. Huh. <laughs> he also has an Emmy nomination for a guest actor spot on The Wonder Years, where he played the coach. Uh, probably best known for the role as the Doctor in Star Trek Voyager, which he played for 168 episodes. And he's going to be in several other 1991 movies as well. So we'll talk about him more later. A lot of these people are also in a bunch of 1991 movies, so I'm going to sort of pass over them. And we'll just talk about Drew Barrymore, who played the fantasy girl, because this is her only 1991 movie. She's an Emmy-nominated and Golden Globe-winning actress for Grey Gardens. Also Emmy-nominated for All of the Other Reindeer, which is a producer role for some sort of kids thing. She has a few daytime Emmy nominations for her talk show. Razzie nominated for Blended. Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, Duplex, and Freddy Got Fingered, MTV Movie Award winner for Best Kiss for Wedding Singer, and also winner for on -screen, Best On-Screen Team for Charlie's Angels and Fifty First Dates, and has been nominated for the Best Dance, Best Fight, Best Kiss for Never Been Kissed, uh, and she's been in all kinds of different stuff like Altered States, Firestarter, E.T., Cat's Eye, Far From Home. All of that happened before this movie, so she is well-established in the industry before she went on to do things like Scream and Charlie's Angels and all that kind of stuff with Adam Sandler. So yeah, um, huge, huge cast. Tried to sort of throw some names in there as we went along, but um, fascinating to see all the little cameos that pop up in this thing. There were no awards to mention on this one. This one came out in the film festival circuit in 1991. Uh, but it did not see a U.S. release until 1993 on home video. So, yeah. Eventually it made its way here. But it did have a little bit of box office performance. It made about $10,000 total, which puts it at 247 on our list. So we'll move on to true crime and pop culture. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about the death of Jack Nance who played the motel clerk in this yes. one a very interesting scene where he's obsessed with squirrels yeah yeah I mean there's like so many things that we could say like each person that Gus came along had like a weird quirkiness to them yeah and so Jack Nance, he was obviously known for being in a lot of David Lynch's movies and then mostly, you know, known for Eraserhead. And he was found dead in his apartment in December of 1996. So I found also his death is considered a homicide still. And people, like, I was reading, I got information from the LA Times, the Pasadena Weekly, and then there's this website called medium.com, and it's kind of got, you know, crimes. There's like a crime log about, um, just about his unsolved, like, his death is still unsolved to this okay. day. And at the end of, the article it says if you have any information about his death to call the pa Pasadena Police Department so it's still open still yeah still a cold case 
Yeah, so just like a little bit about Jack Nance. He struggled with alcohol addiction for most of his life, I guess. And he was married to Catherine Coulson in the 70s. She played the log lady Mm -hmm. in Twin Peaks. And, I mean, they worked together after their marriage ended because, you know, they were both on Twin Peaks together and they were already divorced by that time. And when he became working on Blue Velvet... His co-star, Dennis Hopper, tried to get him help and checked him into a rehab center in L.A. And Jack Nance was sober for a little bit after being in rehab, after Blue Velvet. But while he was in rehab, he met... She's like an adult film person. Her name is Kelly Van Dyke. She's Dick Dick Van Dyke's niece. They okay. married. Okay. They married in 1991. And unfortunately, their marriage was very short because she, I mean, since they met in a rehab center, they both were battling addictions and he was off filming Meatballs 4 somewhere and this in 1991 and she would call him and there was one night where she was calling him saying, you know, I'm struggling and and I guess they were having struggles with their own marriage and I guess there was some sort of, wherever he was filming there was a rainstorm and they cut off, the phone cut off and he was worried about his wife so he asked a friend to go see if she was okay. But this is trigger warning. The person came to their apartment or wherever they lived and found her dead. She hung herself. That was in November of 1991. And after that, he was he became distraught, and I think that's when he became back. He went back to drinking again, mm-hmm. and by ne- December of nineteen ninety six, he just wrapped up filming Lost Highway for David Lynch, and he was living in an apartment in Pasadena, California, and at. Not at 5 a.m. on Sunday, December 29th, 1996, he was Jack Nance was drunk and he decided to go to a Winchell's donut shop, which was near it's a I looked up Winchell's, it's like it's an LA chain, there's mm-hmm. like a few of them there, and there it's like a 24 hour donut shop. Which I was thinking, I'm like, why can't we have a 24 hour? <laughs> I was like, where's Some Dunkin' there? Donuts are, but some are not. Where? Because sometimes I want, like, a pastry. I don't know. At 11 p.m. But, um, so he walks from his apartment to the donut shop where he encountered two men who irritated him. And then, side note, David Lynch, could, I also found out they did, like, in 2002 there was a documentary made on Jack Nance. I tried to look it up and all I found was a trailer on YouTube. So it's not streaming anywhere. But in the documentary, David Lynch said that, you know, Jack Nance was like a hard person to get along with. And he said that everyone irritated him. Mm. So Nance was still drunk from the night before and wasn't thinking clearly so they had witnesses saw that he was he started like a verbal altercation with these two men and one of the men punched him in the head and knocked him to the ground and he was just left there injured but I mean then when I was reading these articles I was like okay how did he get home right and I'm like why didn't these witnesses help him but, or whoever worked at the donut shop, why couldn't they call 911? So, 
the next day he goes I, I don't know how from the time he knocked out to the next day what happened between those hours but he felt fine and he went to lunch with a couple of his friends one of them is an actress by the name of Catherine Case and it was her boyfriend slash fiance at the time Leo Bulgarini they were both in the documentary that was made about him too they all met up for lunch and they were surprised that he arrived because he had a big black eye and he explained what happened the night before but throughout the lunch he kept on saying that he had headaches and he was like oh it must have been from that fight but I mean, you know, his friends were worried about him, and he just went home, and later on, Catherine sent her fiancé, Leo, to go check on Jack, and that's when Leo found Nance crumpled dead on the bathroom floor. And so, with investigation, when detectives arrived on the scene... They found that he had injuries with that were consistent with blunt force trauma. And given the events at the donut shop, the police considered the possibility that Nance's death may be considered a murder. And the medical examiner determined Nance had suffered from subdermal hematoma and had a blood alcohol level of 0.24%. And the coroner ruled Nance's death as a homicide. Um, the police had, I mean, the police interrogated, well, not interrogated, just asked the witnesses that saw the altercation. They said it was two Hispanic males in their early 20s. And that's all the information that they gave. Mm-hmm. And the police were not sure who the two men were. I mean, this is in 1996. I don't know. They didn't have, like, cameras. Yeah, I mean, there's... They're not everywhere. So a donut shop might not have had security cameras. I, I, I mean, if you're, like, a 24-hour establishment, wouldn't you have that? Because you have all kinds of people coming in, like, of various... I mean, you're going to... Especially around, like, 4 or 5 a.m., you're going to have drunk people coming in. Wouldn't you want... Yeah, I mean, that's going to be... A camera. Uh, yeah, that's a business decision, so I don't know. Yeah, I know, but I'm just thinking of all these possibilities, whatever. So... Much more expensive those days than now. Yeah, so given that he was also a, a heavy drinker, they also think that the excessive high blood alcohol level that was found in his toxicology report it could he could have also fallen and hit his head which resulted in his death mm-hmm. but they still think that his death is a homicide and then at the end of this one article that's on the medium.com website it just says and this is from 2021 so it's a year ago they said if you have any information about his death to contact the Pasadena Police Department. I don't have anything. So, t- TV wise, I don't have anything. Okay. But it was a two September tenth, nineteen ninety one, was a Tuesday night, and there wasn't anything. This was a bunch of repeats from, like TGIF, lineups. So hmm. it was like Full House. Who's the boss, Roseanne, and Coach. So all the standards. Yeah, just the sta- like the standard shows that you would see like on a Friday night were just repeated on a Tuesday. Yeah, it's but this is probably still yeah, this fall. is probably like the summer lineup still, right before the fall. Yeah, hopefully starts up. And then. Nothing else. I looked up what happened on this day, but nothing major happened on September 10th, 1991. So, moving on to music, 
I'm going to do the bottom five of the Billboard 100 as of September 14th, 1991, because three of these songs I've never heard of. At um, number 100 is Rush Rush by Paul Abdul. I mean, that was at number one yeah. earlier in the year. And that was 19 weeks on the charts. Number 99 is Do You Want Me by Salt and Peppa, which I hope you know I'm, I, what that song is. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure I do. Because I think I have both of their albums, like both of their major albums. Okay. I don't it's been think... a long time since I've heard that song specifically. Yeah, I don't think they played it when we went to the mixtape thing. No. <laughs> um, so that was 20, 26 weeks on the charts, and it peaked at number 21. Number 98 is a song called I'll Never Let You Go by a band called Steelheart. And this is their only single that made it on the Billboard 100 ch- charts, I guess. And it reached number 23. And it was 27 weeks on the charts. But Steelheart, I've never heard of. They're a typical, you know, glam metal band, but I, they started in 1990. Their first album is in 1990, which, I mean, glam metal bands, they're, they were like 10 years too late. Yeah. I mean, obviously they got a little bit of success on the tail end of that movement, but. Yeah, but I was just thinking okay, well, they decided to make an album and then they have one hit and it's like the they're, you know, it's like a ballad and except like it changes because I don't, I, we both, because this is the first time I've heard this song and you too, when I was playing it, mm-hmm. we both just kind of, it's like, I'll never let you go. Yeah. It took a turn in this song. So I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> And we both just looked at each other. I'm, I'm like, okay. But this was their... They still make music because they have an album, that, an EP that came out in 2020. Huh. So, I mean, good for them, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta stay busy. Yeah. The next song in group I've never even heard of. This song is called Keep Warm. And it's by a group called Ginny, J-I-N-N-Y. And this is a debut on the charts at number 97. Okay. And Ginny is an Italian 1990s band. And it consists of four guys. So the song is, you know, like a typical Euro dance song. And in the video... I guess they use for all the videos for all the songs that were released while they were a band. They they were only around for five years and they re-released this song, Keep Warm, and it went on the charts again in 1995, which is weird. But they for the videos that they made, they always had like a, a model that would be lip-syncing their songs. Okay. Before that was frowned upon too much. Right. And number That's 90... That's what CNC Music Factory did too though, right? Yeah, the for the lead... The yeah, the lead woman. Woman, yeah. They yeah. used like a very pretty woman. In reality, it was just like... I mean, it's not... I don't want to say a pretty woman. It's, it's probably just like... It was know, someone who was not as spry, we'll say. Yeah. It was someone like in her late 30s, 40s. Right, yeah. They want to see like some one... Like a hot, skinny female dancing around and singing when the actual singer is not that. Right. And number 96 is the song if you're serious by this r&b group riff and i feel like we've talked about them before 
Because they have, they had six songs that were released in 1991, and they all were, like, on the charts at some point. Okay. And I think the one that we may have talked about is My Heart is Failing Me, because that's the only song that I recognize from them. But they... Did you ever see the movie Lean on Me? Yeah, in school. They were in that movie. They were... It's been a long time, but they were... There's like a singing group in that movie, and they were the singing group. Okay. I don't remember that, but yeah. And they also did the song for White Men Can't Jump, and that oh. went on the charts when White Men can, Can't Jump. Next year. Yeah, yeah, so in 1992. So, I mean, they were pretty big in the 90s. And they also are still making music because they have a single that came out in 2021 called On This Day. This was also at number 96 and it debuted at 96 on the charts for this week, 1991. All right, so we'll move on to rankings and ratings. Where on your one to five star scale are you going to put Motorama? I mean, I like this movie. But I'm going to give it a two. I was going between two and three. I was trying to put myself in the eyes of, you know, a 10, 11 year old me. Yeah. Because, yeah, as an adult, I can see some of the flaws and some of the weirdness that doesn't really resonate. Sort of like how I had problems with Rock and Roll High School Forever. There's a lot of quirkiness in that movie that doesn't land because it's 30 years later yeah but if i would have seen it at the time you know i would have loved it sort of like how you loved rock and roll high school forever back then yeah i i really liked watching that movie when i was younger like that's why i was saying if i saw this when i was younger i probably would have given this maybe a three but i don't know what i gave rock and roll high school i don't know either i can't remember i don't know if i was between a two and a three before but i I know that i gave it kind of a lower ranking and not because i didn't enjoy myself watched. but because i thought it wasn't like super well, well made. made yeah and this one i mean this one i think is a little bit more well made just in the fact that it doesn't overstay its welcome in any given scene and it just kind of bounces from thing to thing and so if you're bored with a specific scene wait like two minutes and you're gonna have something completely different it's like so I think just the the vast variety and the quirkiness of it, even if like a certain character isn't your cup of tea, you're going to have 30 more to choose from, and I think that really helps it overall. So on my 0 to 4 star scale, I'm going to say it's a 3, but yeah, I think it would be higher if I would have seen it as a kid. Uh, every movie is worth watching once, would you watch this again? Yeah. Yeah, I would too. I think this would also be a really fun midnight movie type of a oh, screening yeah. thing. Because I don't think a lot of people know about this one. I, I still think it's kind of like our little secret type of a thing. You know, even though we didn't get to see it as a kid and sort of discover it on our own. Right. We're it's, discovering it through this it's podcast. Kind of like, you don't hear much about it. Yeah, that's why I was thinking I looked this up and it's not... It wasn't on How Did This Get Made. I was like, did they talk about this? But I didn't see it on their list. It might be too... I don't know. Well, they talk about the most weirdest movies now and i i also looked up did they talk about and you thought your parents were weird because that's a weird that is a strange one that's like a strange movie and i want them to talk about it (laughs) because it's strange i mean this isn't a it's strange this movie is strange this is strange on purpose yeah i think that's important yeah usually when the how did this get made crew deal with strange movies it's it's usually they were yeah they're unintentionally bad like they really want it to be a good movie yeah usually but not always so i don't know if they talk about uh, well whatever i don't think they talk about um on purpose schlocky like campy type stuff because they know it's gonna be bad yeah, or or yeah, it just has like a different feel, and this definitely has that John Waters type of. Uh, yeah, I don't sensation. know if they. Yeah, I just don't think they would talk about John Waters movie because yeah, they're they're all like quirky and weird, and they're supposed to be like that, right. and that's what this is. And if that sounds like what you want to see, then 
As of this recording in August 2022, Motorama is available on Prime, digital rental, VHS, or DVD, so always check your local listings. You can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can email us at 1991moviereweigh at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and YouTube. Just search 1991moviereweigh or go to 1991moviereweigh.com for the full list of movies along with show notes and more. Next week, to close out our family-friendly fantasy month, speaking of how did this get made, we're watching Drop Dead Fred. That's available on digital rental, VHS, or DVD. We will see you then.